If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 18. We, uh, we're committed to expositional preaching here at Capshaw, so we go through books of the Bible. We, when you were in a long book of the Bible that can take a year to get through, we will sometimes divert for a little while, and so we've spent the last six weeks in the Psalms looking at various types of Psalms. Uh, but this morning we're, we're, we're jumping back into the book of Acts, continuing in our study through this uh, very powerful book. And as we've seen, the book of Acts is really the true story about the birth and the expansion of the church of Jesus, the advancement of the kingdom of God, the spread of the gospels to the, nation, uh, to the nations. And it's not just an old record of history, it's actually our story as well. When we get to the final chapter of Acts, which is chapter 28, we're going to see that it ends very abruptly. In fact, it's almost like we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. It was part two of a, a two-volume uh, uh, work. And it, we get to the end of Acts, it's almost as if Luke kind of got distracted or interrupted or didn't have time to finish, or maybe he ran out of papyrus and so he didn't have anything else to write on. It ends so abruptly, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. What happened to the Apostle Paul? Was he ever able to travel again? Um, was he killed in prison after the trial at Caesar? Was he, was he humiliated? What happened to him? We don't really know because we're not told. A lot of questions are left unanswered. Do you have anyone in your family uh, who has a, a maybe a higher need for closure than, than maybe the rest of you? Maybe a spouse or a, a son or daughter. When it comes to watching movies, which Janine and I love to do together, Janine has a much higher need for closure than I do. If a movie ends with a cliffhanger or, or an unresolved conflict, that really bugs her. So we'll be walking out, and you know, every time you leave a movie, there's the obligatory question. You ask, you know, what did you think? I'll say, hey, what did you think? She'll say, you know, I didn't really like the ending. Like, I, didn't, I don't know what happened. Um, for me, I'm not as bothered. In fact, I can, I can actually watch 90% of a movie and then abruptly uh, quit and go on and do something else, and, and it never bothers me. Now, I'm not bragging about that. I'm sure that's some deep-seated psychological defect, um, but that's just the way I am. It doesn't really bother me that much. I'm not uh, as, as in need of closure. Well, the book of Acts leaves us wanting closure uh, pretty badly, really. The golden-tongued preacher of the fourth century, John Chrysostom, wrote, the author brings his narrative to this point and leaves the hearer thirsty for more. And I believe that abrupt ending to the book of Acts is actually intentional, um, as if to communicate the work continues. The mission goes on. The story is not over. The church planting organization that we're a part of, uh, working with the plant churches all over the world, is called Acts 29, which picks up on this idea. The story continues. Your life if you are a Christian, was never meant to be this vicious cycle of work, eat, sleep, repeat. You were, you were born again. You were brought into the kingdom of God, brought into the family of God to live on mission. You're designed for mission. But in order for us to do so faithfully and with confidence, we have to look back at what happened initially. How did the mission start originally and what did the risen Christ do there? So, uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, if you've been with us, we're covering one chapter a week. I won't read every single verse, but I'll read most of it, and uh, we'll get a sense for what uh, the risen Christ is doing. Uh, let's start with verses 1 through 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, 
and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and look at this next phrase, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So in order for the gospel message to get out to both Jews and Gentiles, the Apostle Paul, who was what we might call today bivocational, he was, he was a tent maker, he was a leather worker, he went on multiple missions trips, so at least three, probably more than that. Um, and he would go to these cities, he would preach Christ in the synagogue, he would, he would evangelize those who were non-Jews in, in the town square, and he was constantly proclaiming Christ. He went to at least 50 cities that we know of, maybe more, and in these cities, they kind of varied in, in size and influence. He, he went to some, some really small, small towns that might be something like compared to like a Coleman or a, an Ardmore around here. He went to some slightly larger cities, we might think of maybe a Decatur or something. And then he went to some, a couple that were of the, of the grandest scale of all. They might compare to like a New York City or a Los Angeles. And those two cities were Corinth and Ephesus. So these were the most important cities that Paul visited because of their proximity, because of their political influence, and so on. So Paul's making the rounds. He's going to these cities. And wherever he goes, he's preaching Christ, and he's encouraging uh, the people around him, the believers around him. If there are believers, if there are not believers, again, he's looking to evangelize and plant a church. Corinth is where he is now. This is toward the end of his second missionary journey. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. It was 40 miles west of Athens, Greece, which is where he was coming from. Now, how long do you think it took to traverse 40 miles in the first century Greco-Roman world? Well, you could get there about a day by boat if there was a water passage, or it took a couple of days at least if you were willing to walk fairly briskly. And so Paul goes to Corinth, and when he gets there, he meets this Jewish couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. They're tent makers, they're leather workers, and he meets them, and he ends up spending all, time, all kinds of time with them, engaging them and having a conversation with them. They had been kicked out of Italy, along with all of the other Jewish followers of the way. Those earliest Christians were referred to as followers of the way. And Paul starts working with these two during the day and then preaching Christ at every opportunity. And notice what Paul does in verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogues and, quote, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, there are a couple of things that are especially noteworthy here. One is that Paul spent a lot of his time in the synagogues, which is where the religious people were. And this is because Paul knows that just because someone calls themselves religious or claims to be a follower of God, it doesn't mean that they've trusted in Christ for salvation. You may have in your life this morning some very religious people who need to hear about Jesus. And so he went where the religious people were, the synagogues. Now, another thing that was especially noteworthy is that it's this Greek word persuade, translated persuade. It's not an uncommon word in the New Testament, but it is a powerful word. Here in the imperfect tense, it indicates ongoing argumentation. He's constantly arguing in the true sense of the word. Paul is persistently arguing for the reality of the resurrection and the person of Jesus as the Christ. He's not timidly introducing people to Jesus with a fear of being canceled. 
He's not giving people their space, afraid to broach the subject. He is actively, passionately, intentionally talking about Jesus. And this is really the model for biblical evangelism. Here's our first point this morning. The task of evangelism is not one of passivity, but passionate persuasion. Now, this is a frightening and convicting thing, isn't it? It is for me. I say that because I wonder how often we passionately attempt to persuade someone about Jesus. I'm not questioning whether or not we're in passionate conversations. I'm asking whether or not they're about Jesus. I know we're passionate about some things. For example, I know we're passionate about masks. I know this because I've gotten all kinds of advice on masks. People trying to persuade me in both directions. People very passionate about their conviction. And I can promise you, I've never once asked anyone, how do you feel about masks? <laughs> I never have. But, but people are passionately trying to persuade me either for the benefit or the non-benefit of masks. Janine and I went in a store just last night and someone was loudly complaining in no particular direction about people being in the store without wearing masks. And she actually had her mask on below her nose, which is, which is a violation there. So it was a little counterproductive of her. But she's saying this to us. So I know we're passionate about some things. I know we're passionate about vaccines. I know we're pas- passionate about vaccinations, right? Willing to attempt to persuade someone of our perspective either for or against it. So my question is not, are we passionately involved in conversation? My question is, are we trying to persuade people about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that there is no lasting peace apart from him, that he offers complete and total forgiveness, a restored relationship with the father, that he offered his own life, shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free from sin, death, hell, and condemnation. That he rose again. Are we telling people that every living creature will one day bow before him? Seventeen times in the book of Acts, one of Jesus' followers is described as trying to persuade. And I'm not, this is not me advocating for being a jerk. We still listen. We still engage. We still sympathize. We, but but are, we, are we trying to persuade people of Jesus? This is what Paul does. This is what those in Acts do repeatedly. And and it doesn't often go well. In fact, uh, we see very mixed reviews. We've seen this through the first 17 chapters. How much does persuasion fit into your witness for Christ? Actually trying to change someone else's belief. I'm sad to say not nearly enough in my own life. Now look at verses 5 through 8. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. By the way, a pretty important turning point in in redemptive history here. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
So Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, and then after a short while, he's joined by uh, two of his besties, uh, Silas and Timothy, who had left him in Athens because they were garnering too much attention, um, and together they start testifying about Jesus, which is a word that's typically used for preaching Christ. And by God's grace, Paul saw the gospel bear fruit among those that he was persuading, and two of those, Titius Justus, who was a God-fear, which remember doesn't mean a follower of Jesus. We saw this back in the chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, it wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he believed in one true God. He lived next door to the synagogue. He trusts in Christ. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who was a devout Jewish leader, but a hater of Jesus, trusted in Christ and saw his whole family turn in faith. What an awesome thing to witness. And many others, verse 8, verse eight bab- believed and were baptized. Some, though, were not so receptive. They opposed and reviled Paul. So Paul, verse 6, shook out his garments and said, Your blood is on your own heads. So there was a custom in the first century Mediterranean world where Jesus' followers, when they would go to a foreign country and they would be rejected, sometimes angrily rejected, when they would leave that country and, and enter back into Palestine, they would literally shake the dust off of their sandals and garments. So they would literally shake out the dust. And what this was, it was a symbolic demonstration that the rejection that they had experienced was not on them, but it was on the one who had rejected the word. What they're saying is, what they were saying is, I have preached the good news to you. Your response is on you. In fact, this is actually reminiscent of what Jesus himself said when he sent out the disciples in Matthew 10. He said, in whatever town or village you enter, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So the point is not that if someone mocks us or rejects us, we wash our hands of them but we wash our hands of their response. What they do with the message of Christ is on them. It's not on us. You ever tried to share your faith with someone, uh, maybe even in your own family, maybe uh, a sibling, maybe a parent, maybe an adult child, and, and they just they won't have anything to do with it. In fact, they mock you. They think, you really believe that? Are you serious right now? You, you, you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we know that we're supposed to pray for those who reject us, even our enemies, even those who abuse us, that they would turn in repentant faith and be reconciled to God. And we also know that God actually transforms mockers and scoffers and jeerers and brings them to saving faith. Say, how do you know that? Well, Paul was himself a blasphemer, a mocker and a persecutor of Jesus God converted him in a miraculous way, which is the way that all God's conversions work. They're miraculous. So we pray and we share the gospel. And when it is rejected, we need not feel as though we have been personally rejected, but instead that the message has been rejected and it's not our fault. It's not because we could have done something better necessarily. The rejection of the message is on them And when they receive the message with joy, as many are described as doing in the book of Acts, their conversion is not on us either. Their conversion 
is a credit to the work of the Spirit. Luke will make that clear in the next section. So, verses 9 through 17. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many, many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months there, teaching the, whole, or the word of God among them. But when uh, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Paul, if you've been around, you know Paul has been through some incredible suffering. Uh, remarkable uh, persecution. He has been beaten, imprisoned, stripped, starved, put in stocks, abandoned by his closest friends. The list goes on and on. And here, verse 9, the Lord, which is a Greek word that refers to Jesus, Jesus appears to Paul and promises Paul that he will be with him and that he will prevent anyone from attacking him. Now, this is not an indefinite promise. Paul would be attacked shortly after that, and, and you know, history tells us that he would go through all kinds of other things. The Scriptures reveal that. This is not an indefinite promise, but one that extends during Paul's stay in Corinth. Now, why must Paul stay there, and why is he granted such protection? In verse 10, Jesus says, for I have many in this city who are my people. This is an incredible phrase, theologically. I say that because Corinth was an unevangelized city. There weren't Christians there, except maybe a couple. And even so, Jesus tells Paul, I have many who are my people. Now, how could Jesus say that? Uh, renowned New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall writes, this expression is an unusual one since it uses the term my people for those who are not yet converted. What is Jesus doing here? What is he saying? He is assuring Paul that God has already chosen to save some in that city and their salvation was as good as complete because the Spirit of God would supernaturally see to it that they would respond to the gospel message with repentance and faith. To borrow a phrase from earlier in Acts, in Acts 13, these were the ones who were appointed unto eternal life. The ones who were chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to God by faith. A faith that God himself would supply. Remember what Jesus said in John's gospel? He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. The Father has given to the Son those who will be saved. They have been appointed unto eternal life, chosen by God, given to Jesus Christ as brothers, sisters, and worshipers. And they will come to saving faith because God will make sure of it. 
This is the assurance that, that Jesus himself gives the Apostle Paul. I have some in this city who are my people. Even though they have not yet trusted in me, even though they have not yet turned to me in faith, their salvation is as sure as the rising sun. This means that, as you've heard me say before, those whom God has chosen do not stand, against, do not stand a chance against God when he calls them to himself. They're not converted against their will, but God, by His grace and through His Spirit, gives them a new heart. It's called regeneration, a new will that is able to respond to the gospel invitation. Now, this is a comfort to us on a variety of levels, but let me just point out two ways. It is a very, very deep comfort. One, because those that we might be inclined to write off, to give up on, to lose hope in, the very types of people that we believe that are beyond God's salvation, these are the types of people that God saves. This is why we see these incredible conversions all over the world and in our own spheres. I was talking to my stepdad on, on Friday. He had a stroke three weeks ago, and uh, he's 82. It was called a, a pontine stroke, uh, if I'm saying that right. And the doctors uh, said that this is the kind of stroke that typically leads to a fatality. So most people don't survive. And you've heard the story a couple times about my stepdad, very... Um, anti-God, anti-spiritual things. Didn't want to talk about these things when I was growing up as a teenager. In fact, I became very upset when these things were brought up. Um, but my mom and we as a family prayed for him for 38 years. When he was 72 years old, put his faith in Christ, repented of his sin, and was made new, and uh, was made alive in Christ, became a different person. So I was talking to him on Friday about his recovery, just checking in to see how he's doing. He said to me, you know, the fact that I'm doing as well as I am is really a blessing of God and an answer to prayer. I couldn't believe it. Now, you, you don't have the history that I have, but I couldn't believe that he said this. I was stunned. I really was stunned. I hung up the phone. I went and I told Janine, you're not going to believe what Bob said. He said, he's doing better. He survived because of the blessing of God and the prayers of God's people. This is the reality of conversion. God bringing people to himself those he has chosen. So this is a great comfort to us in evangelism because what it tells us is the result is not up to us. It's God's work which he is accomplishing. All throughout the scripture we see God's sovereign grace at work, God's electing purposes. Not only uh, does it take the burden off of us to quote get results, but it also redefines what evangelism actually is. This is our second point. To evangelize is to bring the good news to all people because God has already determined to enable some to hear and respond. We don't know whom God has chosen. We don't know whom God calls my people. So we bring the good news with passion and persuasion to everyone, believing that God will save some. And we have to believe it, otherwise we won't be sharing the good news. There's a, a well-known story about Charles Spurgeon, who's the great Baptist preacher, 19th century, and he was a guy who preached to thousands of people. One time he preached to 23,000 people in one, in one gathering without any microphone. There was no amplification back then, and every person heard every word. He saw God bring tens of thousands of people to saving faith. Well, there was one particular guy who was following him from city to city, and this guy was a pretty harsh critic. We might even call him a heckler. So he's going around, and, and he's just following Charles Spurgeon. He's listening. He doesn't agree, but he's listening. 
Well, there was a reporter who asked this guy, he said, well, why, why is it that you, you're following Spurgeon around, you're following this preacher around when you yourself are a self-professed atheist? He said, I don't believe what he's saying, but he does. And that makes him worth listening to to me. We have to believe that God will, will do a work through the gospel. Otherwise, we won't share the gospel. God is saving people, the most unexpected people, the people that we at times have written off. And not only do we persuade people who Jesus, who Jesus is, but we, we believe in the power of the gospel ourselves. So about a year and a half uh, in Corinth, Paul uh, sails to Syria with Aquila and Priscilla, and then they go to Ephesus, which is that other, that other great city that I told you about. And then Paul decides to leave from there, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to do some work there. Um, and so Paul goes on to another city. Well, in Ephesus, there was this guy by the name of Apollos. Apollos was, a, was an incredible, passionate preacher. He was actually a way better communicator than the Apostle Paul. And he's preaching, and he's preaching in the Spirit, and he's preaching these incredible fiery messages in the synagogue. Uh, but as good as Apollos was, he didn't fully understand the gospel. His preaching wasn't wrong, it was just incomplete. And so what's pretty cool is, now we don't know exactly what he was missing, and what I, this is not authoritative by any stretch, but what I surmise based on the context and the language is that that Apollos didn't really understand the completeness of God's forgiveness in Christ. And that, that's, what, that's my take on it, and you, you can take that or leave it. Um, but what's pretty cool was Aquila and Priscilla were still in Ephesus when they heard Apollos preaching, and they pulled him aside privately and very respectfully encouraged him, but then also said, hey, there's some things that you're not fully understanding about the gospel. And they explained that to him so he could preach more accurately. Now, Look at verses 27 and 28. And when he, that is Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The message of the apostles is the same. The focus of apostolic preaching is the same. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus the Messiah, that the Scriptures promise, the one sent by God to save His people from their sins. Now, I want to wrap up just quickly by revisiting verses 9 and 10 and a promise that Jesus makes to Paul while he's in Corinth. So, Luke tells us in verses 9 and 10, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. So what do we do with this? This is obviously a promise made to Paul, directly to Paul, not to us. But the same Paul would say in a different letter that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So what do we make about this promise? Well, there are two ways that this promise applies to us. The first way, Jesus says to Paul, I am with you. This is a promise to us as well. In fact, in the Great Commission, Jesus sending out his disciples, he says to them at the end of the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, there is no time in history. There's not even a moment in your life right now when Jesus is not with you. 
And he's not with you simply as a spectator looking to see what will unfold. But he is with you, in you, powerfully working out all things for your good. There is a presence of a particular power at work in the believer. And that power is none other than the risen Christ. We are united with Christ. He indwells us. He is always with us. So when you are at your wit's end, and maybe this happened to you last week, and you're just trying to keep your head above water, you're just trying with your kids or your grandkids or your work or your projects, you're just trying to survive. You know, as Eric Clapton said way back in uh, you know, 461 Ocean Boulevard, he said, if I can't make it through tomorrow, help me make it through today. You're saying, I just got to make it through today. I just need to make it through this particular day. When you're going through a day like that, the risen Christ is with you and in you. And He promises His power in your weakness. So that's one way this promise applies to us. But what about all this promise of protection from harm? We know that it doesn't mean that God promises to keep all Christians from persecution. So we prayed this morning for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They are suffering unbelievably. God has not promised to protect us from all earthly harm. But this promise does apply to us in a way that's actually pretty glorious. When Jesus promises Paul that he will protect him from all harm while he's in Corinth, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the ultimate and final protection that we have in Christ himself. In Jesus, we are protected from the wrath of God. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins as our substitute, we are now forever free from all condemnation. Here's our final point this morning. The promise of Jesus is protection from the wrath of God through His death as our substitute. Because of Adam's sin, every human being ever born dies. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought judgment and death to all. Adam's sin means that we are born cursed by God, objects of God's eternal wrath, destined for everlasting judgment. That's where you stand this morning if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's a frightening thing, isn't it? That's where you stand this morning if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not turned from your sins and clung to the cross of Jesus. Nothing could be more harrowing Nothing could be more frightening, and nothing should create a greater sense of urgency. But because Jesus lived a sinless life, obeyed God perfectly, died on a cross, shedding His blood for our rebellion, those who believe in Jesus are made right with God, robed in the righteousness of Christ, forever forgiven and made to be God's very children. And now because of Jesus, here's the promise that He makes. Here's the promise He makes to us. We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear hell. We no longer have to fear the wrath of God, but instead can look forward to being with God our Father forever. On the days of your greatest successes, and I'm sure some of you could tell me about the week you had, and it was phenomenal. On the days of your greatest successes and on the days of your most spectacular failures, you are loved by God You are approved by God, you are right with God, 
and you will never be an object of his wrath because of the work of Jesus Christ done on your behalf. When you believe, this is what we receive in Christ. While we were once far off, separated from God, enemies of God, we have been brought near by the precious blood of Christ to experience fellowship with our Maker. The guilt and shame that once plagued us because we were separated from God, all that is released and the recognition of God's love poured out into our hearts by the Spirit of God, Romans 5. And now that acceptance by God in Christ fills us and drives us. Where it was once impossible to obey God, now by the presence of Christ in us, it becomes possible as we depend on God's Spirit. Where there was once a crushing weight, now we experience freedom and rest. Where we once had to fear death, now we look forward to being reunited with Christ and all the ones that we love who were in Christ before us. All of this through no effort of our own, All of this through no goodness that we can bring to the table. All this even because of no obedience of our own. All this is ours by faith in Christ and is a tribute to the miraculous and boundless and incredible grace of Christ about which we will sing in just a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is by your grace that we have been saved. It is by your grace that we will persevere till the end. It was because of your grace and your mercy that you chose us before we were even born. It's because of your grace and mercy that you determined that we would be your people before we even trusted in you. Because you had your eye on us, so to speak. You lavished us with your covenantal affection. And you said before we were even born, praise God, that one belongs to me. That's awesome, and we praise you for that, God. We know it's by your grace, so as we sing about it even now, help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.